Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Hello, I'm Doug McCullough from the Lone Star Policy Institute. Uh, my normal partner in crime, Josiah Neely, is uh, not able to join us today. But I am joined by Sarah Quinlan, a conservative writer whose work has appeared in places like The Bulwark, National Review, Arc Digital, Red State, and she also does some work in free speech. So, Sarah, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. As part of Urbane Cowboys, we've had many, many conversations over the past year about the coronavirus pandemic and such. And hopefully this is going to be a little bit of a break from that. And it's going to be a little bit more philosophical, although um, before the show recorded, when I said philosophical, I think that made you a little bit nervous. But the reason I wanted to have the conversation with you is I've I've enjoyed reading your writing. Um, what I've what I've seen is you look like somebody who's really truly thinking for yourself, sort of foregoing the comfort of being on a team or part of a tribe, but but you know actually thinking things through that are a little bit out of the norm for a conservative writer, and I think that's pretty rare, and I, I really do appreciate that. If I were to describe the way I see you as a, as a writer, I would sort of describe you as a, a bleeding heart conservative. Uh, but uh, I see that on your Twitter profile and other things I've seen from you, you, you've described yourself both as a conservative and a feminist, and I think that's probably a good place to start. And sort of the, I guess the traditional question that we probably would have been asking in, you know, before 2016 is how do you reconcile the feminism and conservatism? And then I think the follow-up question I really have is in 2020, you know, what keeps you identifying yourself as a, as a conservative, but, but talk a little bit about how, in your view, you're able to reconcile feminism and conservatism. Oh man, there's so many places to start because the first thing I would say is that it is important to me to label myself as both because I feel as though the movements have been, are seemingly represented by their most extreme voices. And I don't think that actually captures the true ideologies. Um, So for example, to me, conservatism and feminism are both about the individual. So the individual's um, self-reliance, responsibility, liberty, um, personal responsibility, things like that. But unfortunately, people don't see them that way because their most um, prominent representatives are usually the most extreme. And so that's one of the reasons I do go out of my way to continue identifying as a conservative and as a feminist. And it kind of goes both ways where people will kind of be like, well, isn't the isn't the term conservative? Hasn't that been co-opted by the Trump portion of the Republican Party? And to me, being a conservative is more timeless than being a Republican. Party platforms change over the years, but I don't think something like the conservative movement does. And so whereas when I would say like the Republican Party, I do think has shifted towards the party of Trump, I just don't see being a conservative that way. Um, And I think in general, conservatism and feminism have more um, in common than we realize. But I think I forget who coined this term, but the term nutpicking, where we just kind of look at the most, again, I don't want to say crazy, the most extreme um, people in each movement and use that to paint the entire movement. And I just think that's so unproductive, damaging, unhelpful, just pushes us further apart. 
Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if Arthur Brooks is the one that coined the term, but I know it's a, a term that he uses quite a bit, particularly in a couple of his uh, most recent books. It's such a good um, term. I do love it. It's so like <laughs> right, it, right. it says exactly what you're trying to get at. So, but the problem I have with it is I feel like there's times that I I, I know that like for instance if I'm spending time on Twitter. I try to really avoid the obvious nutpicking of I'm not going to go to some random person mm-hmm. um, and and jump all over them about what I think that they're trying to say. That's easy, and I and I also follow the Arthur Brooks or try to follow the Arthur Brooks rule of never engage with an anonymous account because it's always going to go sideways. But what I've really started to struggle with is there's times when. There's someone who's prominent, Ted Cruz, for instance, or someone else who I feel like is sort of grandstanding, and it happens on both sides. It could, another example is AOC, where um, there's someone who probably should know better, does know better, but they're grandstanding and maybe playing a little bit dumb, and I want to just launch into them. And then I'm like, you know, this is just another form of nut picking. So I try to avoid that where I can. Politicians should... <laughs> in my opinion, just stay off of Twitter entirely, off of social media. And if they're going to be on it, like leave it to their staff, their communication staff, because it's really frustrating to me that I feel as though sometimes I put more attention and care into my tweets and the things that I'm putting out into the world with my like 10,000 Twitter followers compared to like actual politicians who have millions of followers who like, I think AOC has deleted more tweets than I have. And I just think that's so incredibly irresponsible. Like a, if you're a politician, your goal should be to speak in a way that you don't have to later delete your tweets. But B, like if you're consistently having to delete tweets because they're inaccurate or you your point was poorly miscommunicated and people misunderstood or anything along those lines, like you should be taking a step back and asking yourself, what am I putting out into the world and how can I do it better? Right, right. So you, you've already sort of touched on the second question about what keeps you identifying as a, as a conservative. And you've, you know, you've mentioned that some of those values are timeless that they're not part of what's you know there's there's what's conservative and then there's what's happening in the republican party and those are not necessarily the same thing but but the conservative identity is sort of taken on a new meaning in the trump years what 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 is it about the the conservative brand or conservative identity that sort of keeps you holding on i found a home in the republican party because i felt as though it was the best vehicle for my conservative principles And I just believe those principles of limited government, uh, free market, free trade, uh, liberty, personal responsibility are the ones that have, you know, brought more people out of poverty across the world than any other economic or political system or have made it possible for each generation of Americans to rise higher than their parents. Um, I think they are the most beneficial for Americans. I think in a way, I would also even argue they contribute to happiness and that if you're self-reliant and independent, able to support yourself and live the life that you want, you'll be happier. So they're just the principles that I believe has made, have made us as prosperous and safe as we are. Kind of want to get into briefly uh, your time at Red State, which I think is sort of interesting because 
you were a writer at Red State and there was a little bit of an exodus. And it may be interesting in the sense of we're at this moment where particularly on the right, we're talking a lot about cancel culture. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> explain your experience at Red State. Maybe give us a background on what, you know, what Red State was and what, you know, and, and what your experience was while you were there. And, and maybe is there is there sort of a analogy there to what conservatives are pointing to is in count and cancel culture um so i'm going to give you like probably way more details than you asked for but um i wanted to write at red state which is a um a right-leaning website uh opinion commentary so i wanted to write at red state because i felt as though we were constantly, we as like a general we, not just the left or the right, but everyone. We were constantly talking past each other. And when I would read things from anyone, I often felt as though they weren't written in a way to persuade the other side anymore. It was more about like speaking to an audience that already agreed with you. And as a never Trump Republican, um, I really wanted to speak to an audience that may not necessarily agree with me. You know, Red State's audience was right leaning and there were uh, Trump supporters and people who didn't support Trump for president. And but I also wanted to write for Red State in a way that someone on the left could read it and be like, you know, I don't agree with the points she's making and I think she's wrong but I'm willing to read her Um, because that to me was the best way to like make any progress in our country or any compromises or come to find any solutions was being able to at least listen and read each other. um, Even if we didn't necessarily agree. And I wanted to be able to explain why I believed in the way, why I believed in the things I did um, because I feel as though there is really a lot of miscommunication between the left and the right. You know, a lot of people will, uh, will use like the rights arguments to be like, oh, they just hate the poor as opposed to being like, no, this is how we think we help the poor uh, become more prosperous. And so that was one of the reasons I wanted to write at Red State. I started in like February or March of 2018. Time is hard these days. Yeah, 2018. (laughs) Um, And I think a month or two after I started was when a bunch of writers who opposed Trump were notified that they were let go. Um, And I wasn't a fan of how the situation was handled. There was a lot of confusion. Um, And I felt as though getting rid of those writers really did make the site less strong. Um, It really, whereas before we had a variety of perspectives and experiences, all of a sudden we, when you get rid of that many voices who have different viewpoints, the the stories on the website will be a lot more similar and also kind of sends a sign to everyone else like, hey, if you step out of line on certain things, you may also get in trouble. Um, so I wrote at Red State for a year and then decided to resign, um, mostly just because I felt as though it wasn't the best place for me anymore. And the, the things I was writing I didn't necessarily want to be, it just wasn't somewhere that I wanted my writing to be anymore. One of the areas that I've, that, that has caught my eye in your writing before where you have um, certainly gone against the, um, I guess the, the mainstream thinking in the conservative movement is on the abortion issue. And, and I'll let you talk about your views on that in just a moment. But 
I know that a lot of you've you've described yourself as a never Trumper. I know that there's a lot of Trump skeptic conservatives that have still held on to supporting Trump because there was early on this hope that, well, with a majority of conservative appointed judges, we'll we'll eventually overturn Roe versus Wade or next best thing, we're going to at least modify Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So it will allow more restrictions on on abortion. And, you know, we just had this uh, Supreme Court decision where in uh, June medical supply where the, the, you know, the Roberts Court um, struck down some uh, regulations from Louisiana on abortion providers. And it seems to me that that sort of undermines this entire idea. Well, um, if we appoint enough conservative judges, we're eventually going to get Roe versus Wade overturned, which really has been. From, you know, basically the, the dominant view among Republicans, you know, during my entire political awareness. But some of the writings I've seen from you sort of have pushed back uh, on that way of thinking. And I guess in light of seeing what the Roberts court has done, a very, you know, by comparison, I guess you could say, presumed to be a very conservative court. Do you think this is a time that conservatives should be rethinking or pro-lifers should be thinking rethinking their approach to abortion policy and abortion as a moral social issue? I personally do not believe that legislation is the most effective way to reduce the number of abortions. And that's what my goal is, is to reduce the number of abortions. And the way you do that, I don't think is through legislation. I think it's A, through changing the culture, um, and B, through supporting women and girls and men. And I don't want to imply in any way that the pro-life movement isn't already doing this. You know, they have, there are so many good pro-life organizations that are focused on providing support to girls and women who find themselves in a position. I don't want to say who find themselves, um, who are in a position where they're considering abortion, but there doesn't seem to be as much focus on that over legislation as I would like to see. Um, like for example, I think Ireland is something that the pro-life movement should really be taking a good look at because Ireland had a constitutional amendment, a constitutional ban on abortion. Um, I think it was their eighth amendment. And 25 years later in 2018, that constitutional ban was overturned because there wasn't enough focus on, on the culture. When you have legislation in place, I think you're less likely to f- to focus on the culture, and as a result, the culture will keep moving without you. And it, it, legislation isn't permanent; it can be overturned, just like we saw in Ireland. And so, I don't think legislation is the most effective way to reduce abortion. And I wish that I just wish that there was more focus on other ways to reduce abortion than focusing entirely on legislation, because you can't legislate the demand away. Um, if you use legislation, there are women who are still going to try to have abortions any way they can. And so you're just making it more risky and more dangerous for mother and baby. And I think the people who get hurt while we wage eternal battles over legislation are the mother and child. So I, I wish that Josiah were here to voice the, um, the conser- uh, the the Catholic response to what I'm about to say, uh, because I think he would have a he'd pick a, uh, he'd probably try to pick this apart. Um, but from my perspective, I think there's a bit of a, an irony among conservatives, particularly those of us of a sort of fiscal conservative, free market approach. Um, 
that so often uh, conservatives they they abortion is a key issue. They want abortion to be illegal or heavily restricted, and on the flip side, they don't want to subsidize um, any type of birth control and. I understand from a fiscal conservatism, personal responsibility idea that I understand where that comes from. But it also, add to your point of if we really think that the issue is let's have fewer abortions because this is that you know this is a this is a personal tra- tragedy, whatever the state of the law is, it seems to me that the the next best thing is let's actually go past some subsidies for providing the birth control. Uh, you know, and here's a, and here's a simple one that uh, conservatives could get behind is make more of the birth control um, over the counter rather than um, rather than requiring a prescription. Uh, I think the Catholic position would be a little bit different from that, but that that's uh, I guess. What are your thoughts on something like that? Uh, is is it the place of government to provide those subsidies? Is that a way that we can sort of reduce the number of abortions? Absolutely. And I actually find it very interesting that it seems as though there's been a shift in that recently it's been Democrats who are blocking over-the-counter birth control and not Republicans. Mm. Um, So I am – when it comes to birth control, I think this is something I kind of break with the feminist movement on, the modern feminist movement, is because I think a lot of the risks of birth control are often downplayed. Um, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all for every woman, but – I think overwhelmingly it is a good thing. Um, And I'm glad to see Republicans trying to offer solutions for reducing abortion and um, reducing the likelihood that a woman would want an abortion. You know, as I mentioned, I sort of view you as sort of a bleeding heart conservative. (laughs) uh, And, and, you know, I clearly are self-proclaimed never Trumper. I see you hanging out with the first principles kids online. Isn't it all exhausting? How do you keep your energy up for all this? And you seem like a very joyful person, but it seems to me if if you're running so contrary to the culture, you're running so contrary to your own party, um, it's it's got to feel like you're tilting at windmills at times. Why not give it all up and go do something completely apolitical? What what keeps you going? I think America is is stronger when she has two healthy parties in our system at least Um, a healthy democrat party and a healthy republican party i personally i know a lot of republicans will disagree with me i personally don't believe that the republican party is in a healthy place and so that's one of the reasons i can't just walk away and i have grown increasingly frustrated that by the way that americans view each other Um, it's a lot of your enemy we're enemies you're my enemy you hate America because you don't agree with the things I'm saying. Um, and I really, to use a really strong word, I l- hate that kind of discourse. I think it's really unhealthy and I think it's it, we shouldn't be viewing other Americans that way just because they disagree with us. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I can't walk away. I think this is so important. You know, I believe in America wholeheartedly. I want her to succeed. I want her people to succeed. I want her people to, uh, you know, live long and happy lives. Like we, we're only on this earth for a short time. And so I think probably (laughs) bleeding heart conservative is a good way to describe me. And it is frustrating. You know, I definitely go through periods where, 
um, like the Twitter discourse is just too much for me. And I end up not tweeting for days because I don't want to put anything out there that I think makes things worse or I don't feel informed enough to comment on something or, you know, I just can't take it and I need to take a break because in many ways I do think Twitter kind of encourages people to be there, to give into their worst impulses. And I wish it weren't that way. Right, right. Yeah, um, <laughs> I had an odd experience that I, I think happens to people like you all the time that that have big Twitter followings. I don't have a big Twitter <laughs> following, and I'm perfectly okay with that. Um, but um, I, <laughs> I actually tweeted out something along the lines of uh, how tiring it is that that people misbehave so badly on Twitter, and that that type of behavior doesn't actually reflect the way people behave in the real world. I mean, this is nothing new. This is, uh, you know, Jonah Goldberg makes that point all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I probably said it in a somewhat snarky way because that's <laughs> how I talk, but it was actually sort of a Jonah Goldberg, Arthur Brooks type of point of, you know, don't give in to the, the rage and, and the lack of goodwill. And um, even though if it did, may, may have had a slight snarky edge to it, um, because I am who I am. Um, but out of the blue, somebody who doesn't follow me, who I've never heard of before, uh, launches into me about this is a time for uh, that, that. Of course, somebody like me would say that because I'm a privileged white male who this whom the system is is meant to build, you know, to protect mm. and provide privilege. So I'm like. Um, I was just saying that we should be kind to each other. Uh, and so it's, it's really, it's a, it is strange on Twitter, just how we, we, we never assume goodwill. You know, we never mm -hmm. approach anything with goodwill. And I, I actually woke up this morning thinking about this, that in my practice as a lawyer, um, you know, I may be negotiating a multimillion dollar purchase agreement, uh, contract, what have you. And it's, it's not that unusual that one attorney will catch a mistake by the other attorney and say, Hey buddy, um, you just wrote this and I don't think that's what you meant. Let me fix this for you and actually get things correct because we know that most likely the other side's eventually going to, you know, catch their own mistake and ask for it mm -hmm. later. Um, but also it's a show of good faith. And like, you know, we're doing that over million dollar issues and <laughs> people on Twitter will, will just pick up a fight with complete strangers over absolute nonsense and show zero goodwill. And it's, it really is, it's a bizarre experience because it really isn't the real world. That's such actually a really interesting point because um, I had to take a negotiation class for, for my MBA. And one of the things we learned, at least in my class, I don't know about other classes, but when you approach a negotiation, assuming bad faith, when both people approach, an, approach a negotiation, assuming bad faith on each other's sides, you're less likely to get anything done. And you end up walking away with nothing, neither of you getting anything you wanted um, because you're so afraid of being taken in or being taken taken for um, taken advantage of. I have a very on point war story from a, a deal that I just worked this spring that I really wish I could could tell, but you know, attorney client privilege. Uh, so uh, 
but that's very that very much hits home with me right now. You know, the, actually, the funny thing about that conversation I had with this sort of random law student, and I actually did engage him in a conversation because his bio showed that he was a law student, and I kind of view myself as a bit of a mentor. Um, is after sort of being called to the carpet by a white law student for mm. my white privilege, um, the very next day um, I got engaged in a conversation on LinkedIn, very different platform, um, by an actual Black Lives um, Black Lives Matter activist, and we ended up, you know, connecting on LinkedIn and having a very frank, very positive conversation. And it, it, you know, it, it, and I even made the point of like, look, I will, I will be friends with, I will have a, you know, I will have conversations with anybody that approaches a conversation with goodwill and honesty. And, you know, it's, it's sort of disarming. And we actually did have a really good conversation. And, it, you know, and so I actually, it's kind of interesting, too, because I showed him a piece that I had just written. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that, I jokingly said that um, that I ripped you off because I think we both were recently using the same lines in our op eds about that we're building towards a, a you know a more perfect union, mm-hmm. uh, which I think everybody was writing the same op ed this year. Yes, um, I saw that everywhere. Every on the Fourth of July, everything was a more perfect union, which is I think reason for hope and optimism. Absolutely. So I showed him this piece and he kind of quibbled a bit. He goes, you're opening. I would disagree because, um, you know, African-Americans were brought to America in very different circumstances than, you know, the whites that migrated here. And I, you know, and I even I commented, commented back to him and said, I'm actually respond, you know, preparing my next op-ed. I said, you actually make a great point and you just influenced my, my next op-ed. Mm-hmm. That, that's, you know, that's a concept that, hey, look, we live in a society, we need to get along. But let's realize that we didn't all come here the same way. So I think, you know, it's those type of it's not, you know, I'm not somebody who knows anything about Hegelian dialectic, but it is that give and take of understanding, you know, here's what I think, here's what somebody else is thinking. And then what you realize, have that conversation, that free, dis, free discourse, your perspective does. It's not like you change your principles, but you realize, hey, the other person actually may have a point that I need to take into account. Yeah. And I think in a way that's part of, has been part of my shift since 2016. I've written and spoken a lot about how 2016 was, November 2016 was really a wake up call for me. Um, I think before that I was kind of, I had thrown, I had fallen into the pattern of being kind of just an automatic Republican, Um, automatically voted Republican, even if I really hadn't followed a local race closely or just automatically assuming that the Republicans uh, argument was right. Um, autom- automatically assuming that whatever, you know, the mainstream media was saying about a Republican was painted or was manipulated to paint the Republican as poorly as possible. And 2016 kind of woke me up to the fact that that is not always the case and that, you know, there are people who I had trusted, just, you know, people are trustworthy and reliable. And you think that the way that they're framing something is accurate. And then you kind of realize, no, like, they, they have a position they want to get out there, they are um, trying to build up their own audience, they have their own purposes for why they're doing the things that they're doing. And so you really do have to um, examine things yourself. And so earlier you had spoken about how I kind of am a little bit contrarian and go against the party, um, and some major figures in it. And that's a big portion of why is that I just don't really, 
I don't automatically trust the narrative the way that I would have in the past. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, sort of the final topic, final question I wanted to get into is I don't want to completely forecast the 2016 election. Uh, I know that Donald Trump had come, you know, had come back from a really huge deficit uh, in 2016. I don't expect that uh, Joe Biden, even though he's a gaffe machine, I don't think he's going to make the type of absolutely fundamental costly error that Hillary Clinton did when she called, you know, called conservatives deplorables, which I think was devastating. Um, but if we sort of look to November and assume that Joe Biden actually wins this, um, what would you want to see in a new conservative movement, you know, starting say in 2021, what's, what principles, uh, should we be, um, you know, returning to what values, what principles, what bundle of policies, what should be the coalition? Because uh, I think that there's, I, my personal view is there's going to be a giant shakeup um, come 2021, where if Donald Trump loses, there's going to be a lot of self-examination on the right of what did we do wrong and what do we need to do better. But I also sort of think that if Donald Trump wins, something similar is going to happen where because his focus isn't really on his focus is on tweeting rather than governing. So I think that come November, uh, there's going to be a scramble for the leadership of the Republican Party and the conservative movement, uh, sort of regardless of what happens. Uh, but I think the dynamics will be very different. But sort of assuming that Joe Biden actually wins, you know, not so much a prediction of what's going to happen, but what would you like to see happen in the conservative movement? Uh, I think first and foremost, I would like to see a shift away from um, victimization and trying to always argue as though like everyone is out to get you. Um, I want to see the conservative movement be happy warriors, um, more fighting on behalf of what we believe in by showing how it can benefit Americans' lives rather than saying how horrible the other side's proposals are. Um, I would like to see a return to free trade. Um, I really don't want the Republican Party to give up that that policy. Um, I'd like to see more uh, focus on crony capitalism because I think crony capitalism does give capitalism a bad name. Um, and the younger generation, they see crony capitalism and they think it's capitalism and that really hurts, I think, the future of our country. And I would really like to see more of a focus on criminal justice reform. I, I think David French recently wrote about becoming, not seeing ourselves as law and order Republicans, but as Bill of Rights Republicans. And I just really love that framing. Um, I think there's a lot of injustice in our criminal justice system that, you know, Americans don't even realize because it flies under the radar across the country. Um, but so many Americans' lives are devastated. And then when they get out of prison, um, you know, they're unable to support themselves the way that they should be and earn a living. And so I, criminal justice reform, I would really really like to see the Republican Party take more of a focus on. It's, it's fascinating because when I, when I hear you talk like this, um, I would be tempted to think that you are a Reagan Republican or even a Jack Kemp Republican, but they were before your time. So <laughs> is, is there anybody sort of... I think my dad would you... be thrilled that you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, and maybe that's, maybe that's the answer there is that it comes from your dad, but is there any... 
Um, anybody sort of in your lifetime, a leader that you could point to that sort of, you know, I don't want to say personifies uh, your views, but are there one or two conservative writers or one or two uh, Republican or libertarian or whatever um, politicians that sort of are an example of sort of your worldview? Uh, it's hard to say because obviously uh, people don't agree on every policy or stance. So I feel as though my views are kind of represented by a variety of people. Um, I will say when it comes to like, for example, the pro-life movement, I am a huge fan of Destiny Herndon De La Rosa. Um, She started an organization called New Wave Feminists. She calls herself a pro-life feminist and their focus is on uh, consistent life ethics. Um, And then You know, when it comes to other people, it really goes through shifts based on the topic at hand and current events. But I would say Carly is a huge inspiration to me. Um, I had the opportunity. Carly Fiorina. Yes. I had the opportunity to hear her speak at the Red State Gathering in 2016 and was just blown away. Um, I think she's a fantastic, not just a fantastic woman leader, but a fantastic leader. Um. You know, when it comes to, I'm going to start like naming off my like favorite Twitter personalities. <laughs> but when it comes to things like, um, well, just in general, I'm going to say his name wrong because I only ever read it. But Patrick um, Chauvinick on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, I love the way he approaches things. Um, Scott Lincecum, I'm probably also butchering that because I Scott read Linscombe. things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I read things and I pronounce them my own way in my own head. But um, I love him on trade. Um, Gabriel Malore, I think he's great on law. So it's just kind of like a hodgepodge of people. Politicians, current politicians. Um, at this point, I'm probably most closely aligned with Justin Amash. But um, yeah, I really like Tim Scott for the most part. Yeah, so I think that's the, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, I think we're aligned on a lot of issues. And I think that that's sort of the, uh, the difficulty is it's easy for me being quite a, quite a bit older than you being able to look back and say, you know, I can look back to a Reagan, uh, a, a Jack Kemp and say, this is, this is my, you know, this is sort of my intellectual heritage, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty easy for me to rattle off a lot of names of writers, think tank people and such. But when it comes to elected officials, the list gets really short. Yes. Yep. And that's 2016 really disillusioned me about politicians and then everything that's happened since when I thought certain politicians would stand up for things and they didn't or would do things. And they didn't. Um, so I'm definitely, uh, I don't want to say like um, completely opposed, but less likely to like wholeheartedly endorsing politicians anymore. Just go ahead and name them. You're, you're thinking of Ben Sass. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a few. There's a few who I thought would uh, behave differently the last four years. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is so fun. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urbane Cowboys.